Light in the Attic Records is one of America's finest reissued labels. Since 2001, they've been shining a spotlight on classic albums and bringing great artists of the past back to our attention. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we look at Light in the Attic Records, its past, present, and future. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. Support for the future of what also comes from Marmoset. Marmoset is an independent, full-service music agency that specializes in meticulously curating rare, vintage, and emerging independent artists, bands, and record labels. Learn more at marmosetmusic.com. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to Matt Sullivan of Light in the Attic Records. Matt, welcome to the future of what? Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. So I'm excited to do a spotlight on Light in the Attic. You guys are a very interesting label. I'm always fascinated by, I mean, I think overall people would classify you as a reissue label. Right. But I don't know if you would classify yourself that way. So I, I'm definitely going to ask you to, to tell me how you got started and how you got interested in, in doing this type of a record label, which is a little bit different than what, you know, like I do, for example. Yeah, I mean, I started like a lot of people in the world of college radio. We had a grew up in the suburbs of Seattle and Bellevue, Washington, and my business partner, Josh Wright, and I went to elementary school, junior high, and high school together. And in high school, there was a station called KASB at 89.3 FM in Bellevue, Washington, which is still there on the FM dial. And the teachers had me be the music director as I was the only student they thought wouldn't steal all the promo CDs. <laughs> and long story short, like 93, 94, that was my introduction to the music business. And I fell in love with, you know, I was already into music, but further fell in love with music and the idea of the label and kind of the curation aspect of it. And then in college, did a lot of internships at labels like Sub Pop in 96 or so and Loose Groove, which is a label that was around the time, the same era, mid-90s, that was owned by Stone Gosser, Cold Jam, and it was kind of more well-known that these days as the first label of Queens of the Stone Age, but I was their first intern, so... That was a really good experience compared to Subhop was a good experience too, but there were a lot of interns. It was a lot a lot different of an experience. And then I was about to go to a study abroad in college to Spain in Madrid. And one of my two bosses at Subhop, Susie Tennant and Kristen Meyer, it was Kristen Meyer who pulled out a Fastbacks 45 single on Munster Records out of Madrid. And she suggested that I call them and do an internship with them instead of, I think I was going to do kind of the NPR or BBC of Spain. And so I just cold called Munster from the phone number on the back of, I think, the Fastback 7-inch. And they answered the phone, and I said, I'd like to do an internship with you. And they said, what's an internship? And I said, well, so I work for free. And they literally said, you're hired in about 45 seconds. So yeah, soon after I was there. And that's kind of where, to finally get to answer your question, that's where I got to get involved with the issues. Because Munster Records, and they have another label called Dainty Soul. Munster's been around since about 84, 85. And... 
their focus primarily is reissues and archival music. So, you know, they put out things like Space and Three and New York Dolls and I want to say Suicide and, you know, a lot of kind of classic British or American releases are back then they were. And so that really opened my mind up to the world of reissues and while sitting at Munster, I was, you know, learning about a lot of those bands and, you know, the Monks and, you know, just a lot of groups that I, I wasn't familiar with and kind of opened up a whole other window. And so, you know, even though at that point I was probably about 20, but, you know, before three, four years early in high school radio, I knew I wanted to do a label, but it was always like a focusing on contemporary music. And so when I got the Munster, I thought, well, it'd be kind of cool to try to incorporate contemporary music releases and also do archival music. And so that's where that kind of stemmed from. And then eventually got back to Seattle and got laid off from a job that was great for a while and then drove me insane. And Right before 9 11, I was able to collect unemployment because I couldn't find a job and I gave the opportunity to start Light in the Attic. So the label kind of started well, 2001, and then the first release was the first couple records by The Last Poets, who were kind of known as one of the roots of hip hop, like Gil Scott Hare in the same era. And that was, I think, came out about October 2002, I think it was. And here we are, 16, 17 years later. <laughs> I know it goes fast, right? <laughs> <laughs> it does go fast. How did that happen? It doesn't, doesn't. Yes. Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah. So I feel like there's this, I'm trying, I'm grasping. So, so bear with me. I'm grasping for a thought here, but you know, I remember sitting in a meeting at A2IM, which is the independent label trade association years ago, like in 2007 or something and having Tom Silverman from Tommy Boy Records put up a slide and say, there have been more records released like in 2007 or whatever it was than in all the years, in, like in the past 20 years combined mm -hmm. because of the internet, because of the uh, ability for people to release music digitally. And so I've been sort of living for the past few years, you know, with this idea in my head that the market is so glutted with music because it's so easy for people to make a record themselves and just pop it out yep. on into the world. Yeah. But at the same time, if you think about it, a label like your label is doing something really interesting because there's also tons of music that came before the digital age, mm -hmm. but that really, you know, maybe got a, a 500 pressing on LP or something and then disappeared. Like people just, yeah. it's gone. Yep. And so what you guys are doing, like the curation of older music is actually really amazing. Thank you. Because that music is there. But we just, you know, we don't know about it. You just, as a as a human person walking through the world, you're not thinking about like, oh, wow. You know, I bet there was an amazing recording made in 1967 of something I'd really love but have never heard of. Yeah, and it, it, it is incredible how it's kind of an endless well in terms of just the you know, history of recorded music in the last, you know, 100 years or something. And that most people do have their ears and eyes set on watching or listening to music of their era or, you know, of now. But you kind of forget, unless you, you know, give it a sec, how, how just deep the whole thing is, of how much music is out there that's not on the radio. You know, that statistic is pretty amazing, but I'm not surprised. There's so much music now, it's just, it's really easy for things to get lost. And a word I often say, and I don't like to say, is like just oversaturation of everything. I think that goes for Donald Trump and media and everything else we're dealing with right now. But there's more great TV shows now than you could ever watch. And there's more great bands now than you could ever listen to. And so, you know, there are those places like Kill Rock Stars or, or Light in the Attic. We hope is, you know, trying to kind of help people out, trying to find something at least that I'm biased, but that we're passionate about. And hopefully they feel the same because it's just, you know, like I have a Spotify account, I have an Apple Music account, and I, you know, they're both great. I use them every day, but like I prefer not to have 5 million songs 
you know, I prefer just to have like a really nicely curated, you know, things at my fingertips that are for me, like I, I don't need Taylor Swift on my phone, Right. <laughs> but there's a million other things that, you know, thousands of other things that are just sitting there waiting to be discovered. So it's like having those kind of guiding points to help point them to you the same way that, you know, might have been or might still be someone at a record store, or big brother, or big sister, or friend down the street or whatever. I mean, that's some of the best places you ever find things. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, talking about formats, for some reason, I'm I'm biased in my, my head. I'm thinking, you know, like, oh, if I got a Light in the Attic record, I'd want it on LP. Right. Right. Because in most cases, that's probably the format that it was first released in. And, you know, and I would, I'd want to hear it the way it was intended to be heard. Right. But that said, do you guys... I'm assuming you guys do, you know, good digital business as well. Like, do you have, you just have fans who listen across both? Or would you say you're more vinyl heavy? I mean, we're definitely more vinyl heavy. And our, you know, personally, that's my favorite. But like, we're not at all. I mean, we're just happy people are listening to the music. Right. However they get it. (laughs) We do, you know, much much of our catalog is available, you know, depending on rights. You know, we might license something for a major label who usually doesn't give us digital rights, at least in terms of streaming rights. You know, some of our uh, catalog is only available, say, in a physical format, at least through us. Sure. But, you know, like digitally, you know, we have, you know, I I don't know the number, but a lot of of music up digitally. So, you know, more than, much more than half of our catalog, I would guess. I should know this, but I don't know off the top of my head. But, you know, in the 16 years, we put out about maybe 250 physical releases. Mm-hmm. So yeah, more than half of those are available digitally. We're constantly, you know, trying to, you know, we realize a lot of people aren't listening to music in a physical format. So, you know, it's important to ask for people, regardless of how they're listening to it or exposed to it through whatever channel. So we are curious, but we're not opposed to digital music. Yeah. And you guys have done some really cool things. Like obviously the Voyager Golden Record is really interesting. That's when we just distributed it. So that was a great label out of uh, the Bay Area called Osmo Records. And those guys put it together and they did everything. And then uh, they came to us to distribute it to physical independent record stores. Mm-hmm. So we handled that. We, distribution is a big part of our business. Josh Wright, my business partner, he's based at our Seattle office. I'm based at our Los Angeles office. And the Seattle office is our home for distribution and kind of warehouse and sales. And they have a record store in the KXP gathering space in the Seattle Center. You know, we shoot about, I think it's about 75 or 80 record labels, mostly kind of archival record labels and reissues and majority being, we do some contemporary stuff with the majority being reissue related things. So that was one that we love that release and we were really excited to be able to distribute it to stores. So for us, like we have distributors as well who get us into the Amazon to the world, but, you know, we sell direct to 300 plus record stores. So that's a very important part of our business. I mean, we kind of learned early on from the guys in Spain, I have to say Munster and Van Solo I interned for in the 90s of just like trying to do as much stuff ourselves and also, you know, reach out to labels that have similar ethos and partner on the distribution of things. Like early on, we couldn't find a distributor to save for our life. So kind of realize if we find people that are in a similar boat as us and then, you know, put our resources together, we'll have a larger catalog. And so, you know, they thank God for the Amoebas and Easy Street Records and, Reckless and Waterloo and all these great stores around the country and world that continue to support what we do. Totally. So what's your feeling? I mean, you know, vinyl is getting more expensive to make. Yeah. We certainly have found that from the time that everybody started recognizing the vinyl renaissance, which was maybe a couple of years, 
I mean, I think probably there's always been vinyl buyers. It's just that everybody noticed uh, like yeah. five years ago or something. Yep. You know, and then we started opening, you know, all these new plants have started opening in the U.S. I think it was something crazy like there used to be four or five plants and now there's 23 or something in the U.S. I, I don't know the exact numbers. Wow. But even with that, I don't necessarily feel like vinyl turnaround times have gotten that much shorter. Like we're all like, when can we, you know, we want to go back to the days where you could get a vinyl record in a month. Yep. And um, that's not happening. (laughs) No. And vinyl's getting more expensive. So with a label like yours, where do you see this going? Like how, do you feel like this is like vinyl is sustainable? Do you think that we're like, just where do you think we're going with this? I think it's sustainable. I mean, I think there's always, or at least for a long period of time, going to be people who are more into vinyl than another source and, and it's going to continue to to sell. But I mean, I, I guess the thing for us is because we distribute so many labels, we're overall selling more vinyl. But I think of our own things, we're seeing the oversaturation of it. So we're selling sometimes less of something that just, just looking at the response from retailer, from press, or just from people in general, it just feels like a few years back, we would have maybe moved more when there wasn't just such an oversaturation of it. It's just There's so many records pressed these days. So saying that art, you know, cost is a hard thing. You're right, because the, the cost has gone up. And you see, if you're pressing less records than you were, the cost of the parts go up and other materials. But I, I don't I don't think it's anything that's going to go away. I mean, it's, it's such a devoted audience. Like, you know, I am personally to it. I mean, I love vinyl. And I think it's going to continue to grow. I mean, it's like, you know, we often laugh of, I mean, all of us, including maybe you, is just how you're constantly seeing people reissue the reissue mm-hmm. or add in the extra track and especially major labels. And, you know, it's like kind of forget of every day a kid is discovering or maybe an older person, you know, the Velvet Underground Nico or Fleetwood Mac Rumors or the first Public Enemy album or these kind of things. And so it is that constant, like, it is reissuing the reissue, but kind of giving it context is, is important. But, you know, and those things can sometimes be frustrating as a fan, for sure. That's not really our business model. I mean, we don't do much of that, if any. But I think saying those things, I mean, it's just like the discovery aspect with vinyl and how it's such an amazing format. I think, I don't know, I just, I don't see it disappearing. People are just like, there's just something about it that's just so timeless. Well, and I feel like I want to make a joke about getting older and liking vinyl even more because I can see it better. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. But that too. was, I mean, that was true when I was a kid, though. I mean, I loved holding my vinyl records, you know? It just felt, like, really real. Yep, yep. <laughs> and the liner notes were great to, you know, I just, I felt like I was definitely one of those kids who wanted to read all the liner notes and wanted to see the connections and, oh, my God, this person played sax in this band and also in this other band and, you know, dumb stuff like that, but of interest. In the same way. I, I love to. <laughs> I love when there's notes and extra little things in there. Yeah, and I think obviously what we've been seeing in the last several years is that people really do like that and they do want that stuff. Yeah. It makes people really happy when you can give them that stuff. Yep. Uh-huh. 
That was They Say I'm Different by Betty Davis. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Matt Sullivan of Light in the Attic Records. What's your feeling on the growth of an audience for music in general. Like, do you, because there was just this article yesterday, and I can't remember where I saw it, but it said that some study was done that showed that people quit listening to new music after they're 28. Did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, did, I didn't see that. And so that's funny. Yeah. It had like an exact, like you, you listen to music until you're 27 years and six months old. Like it had an exact. Wow. Like, number of months <laughs> and then it's like that's it i definitely noticed that for like my parents <laughs> you know where it's like i don't know as people get older it's like they 
don't know if they have less time or they're just like not as I don't know. I I I see as people get older, they're less inclined. Not everybody, but I think the majority of people are less inclined to want to like spend the time that it takes maybe to not just listen to what's on the radio, or not is what just kind of force fed you through Spotify after you click in something and then what comes in next. But everybody's different. I mean, I'm somebody that thoroughly likes the the discovery aspect to it is, is still so fascinating, but I go in waves with it. I mean, you know, it's like anything you hear something and it completely blows your mind and then you're re-energized and then you might go through a period where you're not as energized on it, but I'm definitely not going to be someone who stops listening to music because I'm 42. So I'm, I'm uh, what, 14 years over the 28 year old <laughs> limit. How about you? Do you feel like you listen to more music now than you did then? You know, it's funny. I do listen to a ton of music now, but I have a really different attitude towards it because it's like, I I just had this self-realization the other day. Like I get so much music from people who want me to sign their band Mm -hmm. that it, it's hard to listen to music the way I used to with like so much enthusiasm and joy when it's like somebody actually wants me to spend $45,000 in a year of my life on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's, it feels like there's more riding on it. You know what I mean? Like, of it's, course. it's like, I got to really love this. Like I, you know, there wasn't an expectation before. So now it's harder for me to really feel. So that's why I love listening to music on other people's labels. <laughs> like, yeah. I got no obligations. Like, yeah. I'm just going to listen to this for fun. Do you ever feel like you go to a show and you're sitting there watching the show and, and it's not, you know, maybe it's not someone you work with and you're sitting there <laughs> trying to enjoy the show, but your mind is just wandering of like thinking of this as like, how did everybody get here? And how did everybody find out about this? And I wonder if this band is, is doing okay. And, you know, I wonder how many albums have released. And it's just like thinking of it in terms of like a, just, I guess, from a label standpoint. Totally. I feel like I fall into that sometimes, which is, which can be enjoyable, but also can just be like, kind of want to be able to shut it off when it's not your own thing. <laughs> and it just doesn't shut off because you're, you're, you're on a record label and, you know, it might be six o'clock in the morning and it might be on the toilet on my phone doing email or it might be <laughs> bed at two o'clock in the morning and I, I can't sleep and I'm, I'm on my phone. It's like, it just doesn't, I'm not very good at shutting it off and turning it off. Yeah, no, I understand. What do you think is probably the, I mean, since you brought it up, what's the number one thing as a label owner that you think about in terms of like when you go see a band because when you said that immediately i glommed onto the thought of marketing like how did these people get here like how did they know about this band that's always my initial thing yeah especially if there's like a lot of people there you know or vice versa there's no one there and you're like you know somebody's up here right there should be people here which is really aggravating you feel bad for you know this artist you're seeing is great and there's nobody here right but yeah I, i think definitely like how people coming back to like discovery of people, you know, why is someone there? Where do they discover it? Where do they hear it? You know, it's always like my number one, I guess number two would be like, you know, if, if they are on the label, like what is that relationship like? Is the label being fair and paying them? Right. Are they, uh, I don't know. There's, there's so many aspects to it that are just like completely fascinating. Of like, we don't do a lot of events because a lot of our artists are sadly not with us. They're not performing anymore. And so it's like, we do events like always kind of, amazing how much time goes into putting together an event. An event might only last for two, three, four hours, and then it's gone. Obviously, tons of work goes into making a record and all these things, and you kind of forget, I think, some of those things until you're kind of deep into them. We're doing a, a show at the Barbican in London on June 23rd, and with uh, Parami Hassan, it's, it's, I should back up, putting together a show at the Barbican in London. It's 
featuring a number of artists performing whose music we've reissued over the last 16 years. So it's like kind of a, we tried to do it last year for our 15th anniversary, didn't make it. So we came up with the uh, sweet 16th anniversary <laughs> tagline, which we found out through our UK publicist doesn't mean anything in the UK. <laughs> but anyway, that's what it's called. And so it's Acetone, whose music we reissued last year. It's like this great 90s band that played a lot of like Spiritualize and Nazi Star and they're from Los Angeles and about 92 to 2001. And then Harami Hasano, who's this really incredible Japanese artist who's about 70 years old and who's in a group called Yellow Magic Orchestra, Ryuichi Sakamoto. And it's his first ever time playing the UK's solo albums. And then Willie Thrasher and then this Lindell Saddleback, who is, um, he's also about 70, has never played outside of North America. Willie was part of our this really incredible project, my favorite thing we've ever released, called Native North America Volume 1. It's a collection of folk rock and country music of Native peoples and Inuit peoples and Native Americans doing folk rock and country music. And he was on there. So all those people are performing and not a long story short, a, uh, a short story long. <laughs> we're uh, putting together that event. And so it's just been like insane how much, I mean, you know, we're dealing with a lot of people. Some people don't haven't played for so long, so it is a little more complicated, but I always joke around like when I'm holding a, you know, most people don't know what it takes to make a record, you need a vinyl record or record an album or, you know, go on tour and that kind of thing. And I always say like, if I'm, you know, no one, I don't know, how, you know, what it takes to make toothpaste or syrup or uh, those kind of things. It's like these things are it's a process. So and, and making records is a is a long, long process. Yeah, but a good one. Yeah, and a worthwhile one. Totally. Yeah, the process of discovery. You know, one thing I I always think about is is that a lot of people who listen to music who do actually enjoy music are not. You know, it's like you sort of need two steps to be the kind of music listener that I remember being as a kid because you have to be interested in music, but you also have to be willing to like go find it. <laughs> and I think there's a lot more passive listening done by music fans these days. Yeah. And I think that's just based on the technology. You know, it's like, it's so available, like it's just right there and you can just listen to it. But I think that's something that, that you guys are doing, that reissue labels are doing, that, you know, your distributed labels are doing is that's important is putting this stuff into the marketplace so that people have a chance to actually hear it. Yeah. Because I think that's, they're not going to go search for it, you know? So if it's out there, there's more of a chance that more people are going to get their ears on it. You know, some of this stuff that's just brilliant, but has been lost, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely the goal. I think sometimes context and these things are really helpful with trying to document these recordings and artists while they're still around and and that stuff, you know, can can often help people kind of understand why it's more worthwhile or something that was, you know, 15, 20, 40, 50 years ago is worth listening to. But it is, yeah, it's definitely asking something of someone, especially, you know, like for us, you know, liar notes are a really important part of our, our process. And, you know, we're never really sure, like, how many people actually read them. But in all honesty, we don't really care because it's just, you know, we feel that they're important and I think it needs to be done. Definitely. Well, on that note, I thank you, Matt Sullivan, for being with us today on The Future of What? No problem. Thanks for having me.
That was Return from the Ice by Acetone. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. Support for the future of what comes from Marmoset. Marmoset is an independent, full-service music agency that specializes in meticulously curating rare, vintage, and emerging independent artists, bands, and record labels, and representing them for music licensing. Marmoset also boasts an accomplished original music production team that works directly with independent artists, bands, and record labels to craft original music, soundtracks, and scores for any creative medium imaginable. Learn more at marmosetmusic.com. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Ishmael Butler of Diggable Planets and Shabazz Palaces. Ish, welcome to The Future of What. Ah, it's good to be here. I always (laughs) wanted to be in the future, you know? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, part of us are all, we're always living in the future, right? Yeah. So our show today is about Light in the Attic Records. Yeah. And you have worked with them. They've done some reissues of your Diggable Planets albums. Is that correct? Yes. How did you come to work with these guys on this? Well, I think Matt wanted to, you know, they're always looking to reissue, repackage, remaster recordings that they like and feel like they want to shine you know, a new light on with the with the sort of reissuing and reimagining of stuff from the past, you know, like, and they always like take a lot of time and care to get everything together with the packaging and, and do new liner notes and check on the people that made the music and what they're up to now, you know, so it's kind of like a anthropological, you know, like uh, <laughs> musical artifact, really, that they, they get down on. So wow. he asked, you know, had interest in doing it and chase down all the stuff that, that he has to chase down logistically. They got a lot of work to do to, like, get the licenses and cut deals with the labels that originally released the record. So he did all of that and contacted me early in the stage to see if I thought it was cool, which I did. Then he had a friend of mine, Larry uh, Mizell Jr., do the liner notes. And they tracked down, got a lot of the art stocks and everything like that to try to redo stuff in the original way they just really they really go all out you know and and make you really proud to have somebody sort of look at your work from back in the day and and reimagine it re-release it try to make it fresh again you know absolutely no i think that's one of the most interesting things because you know this musical landscape that we're living in is so crowded right now there's so much stuff yeah but at the same time, there's also all this great stuff from the past that's kind of getting lost. That's kind of kind of falling by the wayside. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that's why any like if you made music in the past, like any returning over of it, you know, to bring it back out again and 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 make it current by injecting it into the the business landscape, you know, like putting something behind it, resources and time and energy is rare and really special. Absolutely. You know? So what they do is a really 
kind of a noble service, really, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And you and I, I mean, I feel like we witnessed, you and I both last week witnessed something that was really special in that an artist that's also been kind of lost to the past. I mean, Funky 4 Plus 1, we got to watch them <laughs> perform on the stage at the Libero Awards. Libero, that's how you pronounce it? Yes. Yeah. I wasn't really that hip to it, you know, and I had heard of it, but when I was coming there, I didn't expect it to be quite as elegant as it was, you know, and, and, and the production and the logistics was really well tended to, you know, it was a comfortable event and it was really, really good. The fact that they had the funky four plus one there was like, I don't know, it was just like the icing on top of my <laughs> understanding of how cool of an event it was, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I wasn't even expecting that, and here they come with that, and it was, it was pretty amazing. I was so impressed. I mean, especially, you know, your band, Diggable Planets, you guys were notable for having a female MC. Yeah. But this, I mean, Shaw Rock is the original female MC, yeah. and she yeah. was amazing. I mean, I was blown away. <laughs> Yeah. She still got it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the crews, the original crews, like, there was a lot of guy crews and stuff, but there was also a lot of, like, women weren't necessarily, like, thought of as not rappers mm -hmm. ever in hip-hop. You know what I mean? Like, right. if people think that, that's not actually true. There was always female crews. It was, a lot of times they were, like, all female or all male, but the ladies were always rapping, DJing, producing, all that, all that kind of stuff, you know? So... It was good to have her there, you know, the original one, mm -hmm. and still, you know, looking looking and sounding good was pretty amazing. Yeah, I was blown away. I really was by that. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, and then, of course, you know, you're on to new projects. Your current band, Shabazz Palaces, actually won Best Hip Hop Album yeah. at the Libera Awards last week, which congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, that was surprising, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was a night of surprises. I, it really was. Yeah, and I thought I like I was asking Tony from from Sub Pop. I was like, like, what, what's the deal? You know, like, how did we win? You know what I'm saying? Like, is, like, is it juiced in in some kind of way? <laughs> and he was just basically telling me like, nah, you know, you, you got to nominate, you know, a group, but then they got to go into a larger nomination pool, and then gets whittled down to the ones that actually get the actual nomination for the award. So. That's voted on by all the people that are on the board and work at the labels and stuff. So it's really cool how they do it, and it's legit, too, you know? So it's that's a pretty cool thing they got going. Yeah. No, I I, I can't complain. I was a winner, too, so I'm I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good night. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. It really was. So have you guys seen, I mean, since you did the reissue, you, you reissued your second Diggable Planets record, Blowout Calm. And then you also did a special 25th anniversary edition of your first Diggable Planets album on Light in the Attic. Yeah. Have you seen like a little bit of increase in traffic then in that case? I mean, have people, do you think it's helped people sort of rediscover that band? Most definitely. I mean, you know, we, we still tour, <laughs> you know, we still get requested and compensated to go and perform the songs that are on those two albums, you know, and that those, they came out in 93 and 94. So <laughs> yeah, it helps. You know what I mean? And, and, and like I said, like any time and energy that's put into putting something out in, like you were saying, in the, in the climate 
today. It's a musical climate, but it's really a business climate. It's a market, you know? So people really don't have the resources to just kind of blow, you know? So they have to get behind things that they like and respect and appreciate, of course, but also that they feel have some viability for their bottom line. So it's huge that people take a chance on the music like that, but it also helps spur the music to get further and stay, you know, keep some kind of hold on today and, and some stay relevant in a way, you know, and stay and matter in a way, you know? Absolutely. So it's, it's like a blessing. It is, it is. And it, and it helps, you know, like you said, it's not just that people my age are going, oh yeah, I remember that song from when I was in college. It's that young people are learning about these songs for the first time. And that's beautiful. You know, it's beautiful that we can bring music back to people, you know, and it's fresh. Yeah, because we think of time as moving like an arrow, you know, through what we call space. But there's other ways of thinking about it, you know. And if you listen to music that was recorded 20 years ago, but you're listening to it now, it's music that's for now, of now. And Light in the Attic, they, they built their brand really to where if you see their logo, you're expecting a lot of different things are, are evoked. You know, you know it's going to be quality. You know it's going to sound good. You know it's going to look good. You know it's going to have some extra accoutrements to it that add to the value and also are going to like feed your interest in getting deeper into the story about how this artifact happened. You know, so like I said there, just being a part of that, even if somebody doesn't know what Dickable is, but they know Light in the Attic as a brand, they're going to like, you can ride that into somebody picking it up, finding out about it, maybe even buying it and listening to it, you know? So it's cool to be down with those guys, you know? Absolutely. Well, Ishmael Butler, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What? I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Rose-colored corner. Where too many people are there And it's noisy and bright and no one cares But I'm happy in my rose-colored corner No hurry to go anywhere And the people, they stop and they stare Discuss what really isn't there But I'm happy in my rose-colored corner No hurry to go anywhere And the people, they keep all their secrets Awaiting each new break of dawn And they flew you to their four-walled gray worlds Undaunted that day is come and gone too many people are there And it's noisy and bright and no one cares But I'm happy in my rose-colored corner No hurry to go anywhere And the people, they keep all their secrets And they're waiting for each new break of dawn then they flee to the four-walled grave worlds Undaunted that day is come and gone There too many people are there And it's noisy and bright, no one cares But I'm happy
happy in my rose-colored corner No hurry to go anywhere No hurry to go anywhere That sounds good. That was Rose-Colored Corner by Lynn Castle with Last Friday's Fire. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Betty Davis, Acetone, Lynn Castle with Last Friday's Fire, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>